we have all been a part of a meeting at some point. A meeting where it is a good idea to have excellent records. Because while we may remember the things that are, that are happening in this meeting, our memories don't really last too far beyond maybe that evening. Maybe some of you will last a week or so. But in general, we need good records. We need to know for certain what was said and the decisions that were made. Now, I can remember I had the same teacher for third and fourth grade. Uh, she had originally been a one-room ho- one schoolhouse teacher, and so just having one grade of, you know, ten of us wasn't enough for her, so they gave her two grades. At least that's how I interpreted it when I was a kid. Her name was Laura Schmidt, and she had us have meetings once a month. Now, I have no idea what Laura had us had, have those meetings about, but it was important. I go back, and I remember how important it was that she taught us how to do a meeting, how to run a meeting. We took turns running it, taking minutes, doing all of these things. It was an important thing. You need to know these things because without a record of what happens, people can easily kind of make things up as they go, right? Records are vital. Now, you can expand what I'm talking about beyond our little meetings in third and fourth grade or other meetings. It's, it's important to have a good record. If you were to ask me who was at a family celebration in 1985, I could throw out a few names, probably my close immediate family. But then, if you dig out the picture, a picture of a family reunion is a good record. We can look through and find who was there and who was not. Having good records matters. That's why it's important that we have these things that we can see, things that we can go back to and understand who was there, what happened, and why it matters. Well, today, we are kicking off into the book of Luke. And we're seeing that this is an important record of the ministry of Jesus. And we're only going to be looking at the first four verses that we read today. And we're going to be thinking about the significance of the gospel records. Luke, but the gospel records as a whole. And we're going to come to understand about not only the Gospels, but God's Word, how important it is that these things were written down. But we are also going to take some time today and consider, why is this message important? What is the message that we are to be centering on here? Now, we're not going to be breaking down the passage into two or three points like we normally do because it is such a short passage and we want to get through the get through the service right we got the lord's supper and all this stuff i don't want to keep you too long and so we're just going to be looking at the general idea that's in this passage considering some things in in some ways making a case for the gospel of luke and for the word of god as a whole and so we have to remember what is the big story What is being told here in the Gospel of Luke? And why does it matter that Luke wrote it down for us? And so we're going to look at the first verse, or first verse of this paragraph, because it has an important idea in it. It tells us that Luke is writing down the story of Jesus so that there is a record of what Jesus did. Now you notice that it says that that many have undertaken to compile this story. Other people, other than Luke, have taken pen to paper to tell the story of Jesus. 
Now, this certainly would have included Mark's gospel for sure, because we are very certain that Mark's gospel was the first gospel, and it may also reference the gospel of Matthew. We're not 100% certain whether Luke or Matthew came first, but there's also a chance that there were other documents out there that were written. They were trying to write down what had happened in the life of Jesus. And so maybe Luke used some of these documents as research. He was a thorough researcher, and so maybe he used them. Now, we don't know exactly when the gospel accounts were written. Now, as awesome as it would be is if we dug up the manuscripts, these ancient manuscripts, and there was a, there was a time stamp on them. Bam! Right there in our Gregorian calendar. This was written in 55 AD. Wouldn't that be nice? Well, we don't have that because the Gregorian calendar that we use didn't even exist until Pope Gregory in 1582. So we can't have any type of date on these documents that would tell us how we would view it in the course of history from our perspective. But what we do know from the evidence that is available about Matthew, Mark, and Luke is that they would have been written very quite early, prior to, the, prior to the destruction of the temple, which happened in the year 70. Now, we can actually see this from the internal evidence of Luke, and from Acts especially. Now, Luke wrote both Luke and Acts, and at the end of Acts, Paul is still alive. Paul, did, Paul died sometime after the fire in Rome, which would have been in 64, and he died before Nero died in the year 68. So we have to think about that time frame a little bit. If Paul would have been martyred, if he would have been martyred and, and Luke was writing down Acts, don't you think Luke would have put that information in the book of Acts? He would have told about it. And then on top of it all, we get to the year 70 and there is this great tribulation that causes the temple to be destroyed if Luke was writing this down and writing down the history of the early church and the temple was destroyed and sacrifices were no longer needed because Jesus was the ultimate sacrifice, wouldn't have Luke told us about the destruction of the temple? So we know how early it was written. Now, some of you are, are looking at me like, hey, that's interesting information. Other people are like, why are you bringing this up? Well, the point that I'm making is that the books of the New Testament are very early documents. They are an account of something that occurred within the lifetime of a significant number of people who would have been around when the original events that the books are describing happened. And we also can understand why there would have been a significant concern around the time of the 60s to write this down, to have a list or a story of the events of the life of Jesus and of the early church. Because there are three things that are going against him here. This is pretty significant. The first thing is time. You get to the 60s, and the apostles are starting to get pretty old. And there's a desire for them to have their testimony written down and have it be formally chronicled before they all die off. Well, then on top of it, we have a second problem. Persecution. I just talked about Paul being martyred. He and Peter were martyred around the same time. Tradition has Peter being crucified upside down and, and Paul being beheaded. These guys are not only dying off because of age, persecution is coming after them. If time won't get the apostles, 
persecution will. And then the third thing, and you see this more in the second century than than the time when these were written, but the other thing you have to worry about is false teaching. Look at the letters that Paul wrote. How often is he saying, no, you have this wrong. False teaching was rampant in the early church. You have to make sure you get the stories right. Now, you've probably heard of some of the other gospel accounts, right? They have different ideas, and they infiltrated the churches in the early church. They were, they were false teachings in regards to the life of Jesus. There's many documents that sprung up over the years, and if you wait, around Christmas time and around Easter, the History Channel will tell you that they're authoritative, that these are the real stories of Jesus. Well, I decided, after seeing some History Channel specials many years ago, to undertake writing a paper for my undergraduate church history class on these books. And so I bought one. And if you open it up and you read them, you can tell that these are nothing like the rest of the New Testament. They're older. They claim to be written by the apostles, but they're from the late 2nd century and the 3rd century. They're not authoritative books. They're not early like the Gospels that I was talking about early. These false Gospels have nothing in common. So they share some language with the New Testament, but the doctrine that's found in them are not, not the same as what we find in Holy Scripture. They were trying to pass themselves off as authoritative, but they just don't pass the muster compared to what we find in the biblical Gospels. And so we are blessed. We are blessed to have all this research by Luke and have this account that has stood the test of time. And we see something important here that Luke has to say about why he's doing this, why all these details matter. He is compiling the narrative of what was accomplished. There's something implied in that statement, right? The the Greek word that our ESV Bibles translate as accomplished has this idea of fulfillment. Luke is talking about what has been accomplished in the unfolding plan of redemption that God has promised all the way back in the beginning. That's the story here. Luke is not simply saying that Jesus was a wise guru who said some cool sayings, man. And now we should try to style our lives after him. Jesus is not a hippie who has ways of living your best life. That wasn't the point. That wasn't his mission. Luke is telling us that the story of Jesus is about what he accomplished as Savior. That's what the story is about. He accomplished salvation. Jesus is the promised one, the one we've been tracking through Genesis, the one who is to come and crush the head of the serpent. Many people, many people try to make Jesus out to be a wise sage or that enlightened hippie that I referenced who had a bunch of good stuff to tell us about loving others, but is not They say that he is not the savior of a people for his own possession. They miss the point. And we must absolutely reject that idea that Jesus is merely a wise teacher and not savior. We must reject that for the patent nonsense that it is. To believe and say these things is to spit on what Jesus accomplished. And it throws out his precious work that he has done to buy his bride, the church. 
When we reject Jesus as Savior, we spit on that work that he has done to save you and I and to give us the assurance that we have salvation in what he accomplished. We gather each week not to celebrate that Jesus said good things. We gather each week to celebrate that our salvation was accomplished because that's our hope. Our hope is not that the leader of our movement had the best moral teaching. Our hope is that God the Son fulfilled the promise that was made to us in Genesis. We trust that he is the promised seed of the woman who came and crushed the head of the serpent. And he fulfills that promise by taking on our very own flesh and living the perfect life that we couldn't live. A life in accordance with God's law. And we believe and we trust that he bears the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin in his sacrificial and substitutionary death. He defeats death by rising from the dead on the third day, and now he is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now. That is what was accomplished by Jesus. That is our hope. And so if we are going to get the message straight, we need this word from God that will let us know what was accomplished. And Luke lets us know what he did to put together this book for the people of God. We see it here in verses 2 and 3. Luke references eyewitnesses and ministers of the word that have delivered this message. Luke himself was not an eyewitness. And so he is going to those who were. The apostles attest to what Jesus did. And we find that Luke, as someone who has come to faith in the Lord Jesus, later on, has been following this all closely for some time. It would seem that his goal is to ensure that the story is chronicled so that people will know the truth. There is something significant about writing a book like this, right? There's a beginning to what Luke wrote. There is an end. It's written down. It's established. Early churches could receive it and know that there's a beginning and an end, and they could compare other manuscripts of it with other ones to make sure they had the right one. It was authoritative, These early churches could receive it and know it was the account of the life of Jesus given by Luke. And notice, notice that it is sent here to someone called Most Excellent Theophilus. Now when you read this, you might be thinking that it's odd that that Luke would have labored to write all of this down for one guy. Well, in this time, in the first century, a dedication to an individual such as this was actually common even if the book was meant for a larger audience. There could be several reasons for this, but I think the most compelling one is that the person addressed might be the one who has funded it. And they'll be funding the copying and the distribution of this document. Remember, they didn't have the printing press. They couldn't write a book and have it self-published on Amazon, right? It had to be copied. It had to be done well. This document was going to have to be copied by scribes And that would have been an expensive undertaking. And one other point of note here is that the title that is given to Theophilus, most excellent Theophilus, if you're like me and you grew up with Bill and Ted, you think that's kind of a neat title, most excellent Theophilus, right? But that title indicates that someone involved in the Roman, that this is someone who's involved in the Roman government hierarchy. He is a Gentile. 
This isn't a Hebrew person. It's someone who is a Gentile who has come to faith in Jesus. And so as we go forward here, we can understand that while the book of Luke is telling the very Hebrew story of the arrival of the Messiah as the fulfillment of prophecy, Luke is telling the story to a Gentile. We have to remember that as we are journeying through it over the next several weeks. The message of salvation in Christ is for all people, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of of background. All are called to repentance and faith in Jesus, just as you and I have been. And as our passage for today closes, we see that Paul desires his audience to have confidence and assurance in the message. As we look at this, we see that the goal of this book, the goal of Luke, is to give the reader certainty. Now, our modern sensibilities don't like that much. Certainty about something like this, spiritual and and religious things, are are thought to be about personal preference, about my own sincerity and in what I believe, and you can believe whatever you want to believe. That's how our modern world is wired. It's considered to be something internal. And so to claim external truth is offensive to our culture. But Luke doesn't have our modern mindset, thankfully. He wants to give the truth of what happened in the life of Jesus to Theophilus so that he can know for sure he wants Theophilus and the audience, which includes us, to have certainty. And isn't that what we all not only want, but isn't that what we all need? As we consider our own mortality or as we sit at the bedside of a loved one who is facing the end, do we want uncertainty and speculation? Is that what we want? Do we want thoughts of our own about who God is? Or or do we want to put our faith and trust in something that has been accomplished? I recently saw a video clip from a TV show uh, where a man was sick, he was dying of cancer, and he asked to see a chaplain. And the chaplain who came didn't speak in certain terms, but instead said that it was whatever this dying man thought would happen to him would happen to him in the end. The chaplain said that they thought it was up to each one of us to interpret what God wanted of them. The man who was facing his own mortality got angry with the chaplain, and he asked for a different one. He wanted a chaplain who believed in a real God and a real hell. Because he was coming up against the end of his life. He didn't have much time left. And this was powerful. I've probably watched it five or six times. And I'm not usually the type of person who is moved to tears by a clip from a TV show. It's a story, right? But I cried when I saw that for the first time. Because I've had personal experiences with, with sentiments such as that one. Oh, it's, all what, it's whatever you believe. How can you say that to somebody who's facing the end? They need to be certain. They need to know. That man in that clip I watched did not need platitudes about how he had been mostly good or that it was about what he believed on the inside about himself because this man had real remorse for his sin and he needed real forgiveness. He needed certainty because he was running out of time. And what a blessing it is that the Gospel of Luke, 
was written that we might have certainty concerning the things that have been taught to us. That's what the Gospel of Luke was written to do, to give us certainty of who Christ is and what he has accomplished to save us. And the Word of God comes to us and by the power of the Spirit gives us the gift of faith and we are saved by the grace of God. That's the message that the Gospel of Luke gives to us and that is the message that we are to have confidence in. So how can we be certain that this is the the purpose of the message of the book? How can we be certain that we've got the message right? With all the conflicting opinions out there, why am I so certain of the purpose of Luke's gospel being the salvation that we have in Jesus? Well, look before us today and see this covenant meal that is spread out before us. You and I can fast forward to the 22nd chapter of Luke. And we can read about the institution of this covenant meal. And what does the Lord Jesus Christ say? That this is his body and that the cup in the new covenant is a new covenant in his blood. When we come to the table today, Jesus taught wonderful moral things that we should follow absolutely. But we don't come to the table to remember the excellent moral teachings of Jesus. That's not why we come. We don't come in remembrance of the law. We come in remembrance of the gospel. We come to the table, and it is a feast in remembrance of the fact that Christ's blood was shed to bring us into covenant with him. That's why we come to the table. Because we're remembering what Christ has done, that we might have certainty that we have salvation. And so, as we come to this table this morning, may we come in certainty. May we eat and drink in confidence with certainty that the body that was broken and the blood that was shed is able to save and that the holy and sufficient word of God tells us that message that we might believe by faith and have a sure and certain trust in the eternal life that is promised to us. And then... May we step out from here today fully certain that this is not only sufficient to save, but sufficient to grow us in faith as we depart from here, fed in the table. May God's word and the sacrament that we take today nourish us that we might depart from here in gratitude and joy in what Christ has done for us to save us so that we might love and serve our neighbor this week that the Lord Jesus Christ might receive all honor, glory, and praise for who he is and what he has done to save us. For he has accomplished his will that you and I might have certainty that we are saved and have eternal life. Amen.